0: Welcome to Unlocking Brand, a part of our Siegel and Gale podcast series. Here, our global brand experts host live case studies, deliver actionable insights, and answer key questions on the topics that matter to brand marketers today. In this episode, we reveal and explore the findings from the 10th edition of our World's Simplest Brand Study. From where they shop to how brands communicate, people put a premium on experiences that are easy to understand transparent and honest, meet their needs, are innovative and useful, in short, simple. Our Global Director of Business Analytics and Insights, Brian Rafferty, and Global Chief Marketing Officer, Margaret Malloy, discuss the world's simplest brands, why simplicity pays, and how brands can deliver simpler experiences. This is Siegel and Gale Says.
1: Hello and welcome to the Siegel & Gale Future of Branding. In this, our Unlocking Brand series, we explore the most impactful topics in branding today. I'm Margaret Molloy, Global Chief Marketing Officer of Siegel & Gale, and your host for today's conversation. Siegel & Gale is a global brand strategy, design, and experience firm. When it comes to helping our clients build great brands, we have been championing simplicity for over 50 years. From where and how they shop to how they like to engage with brand communications and customer service, we believe people put a premium on simple experiences. And we have data to support this belief. Over a decade of data, 15,000 consumers across nine countries have spoken. They have ranked 800 brands and 25 industries according to their complexity and simplicity. Today, we will reveal the findings from the newly launched Siegel Gale World's Simplest Brands 10th edition. We will identify who are the world's simplest brands? Why does simplicity pay? And how can a brand deliver simpler experiences? And for this conversation, I am joined by Brian Rafferty, Siegel & Gale Global Head of Insights. Hello, Brian.
2: Hi, Margaret. Thanks for having me.
1: Delighted you can join us for this. So, Brian, let's get started in the beginning. How do you define a simple brand?
2: Well, you know, the way we think about it is it's the intersection of clarity and surprise. So, really, it's, uh, you know, brands that are not only remarkably clear in the in the way they communicate and in the experiences they provide, but also do it in a way that's unexpectedly fresh and, uh, you know, actually surprising to to people. And, you know, what we found is, you know, simplicity is not a... Is not finite and not a destination, it's a journey in the sense that certain things can be surprisingly simple and and delightful to people, you know, one year and then a number of years later they kind of become table stakes and and people are just expecting them and they know and they won't no go actually differentiate any longer.
1: That's interesting. Put a pin in that because I would love to explore the patterns over the decade or so that we've been doing this study. Give us a sense, just very briefly, for the background or the genesis of this report.
2: Um, well, you know, Siegel and Gale has been about simplicity since uh, since it was founded, and really, what we wanted to do is is study that, and you know, uh, see how which brands do. Do people find simplest? Why do they find them simple? Which do they find comp- complex, and why do they find them complex? And then, also, as you you know alluded to in the intro, you know what really what is the value of of embracing simplicity for brands? And you know, as we've seen in in the study over the the, the many years we've now done it, you know, as you said, simplicity pays in the sense that we see that brands that are seen as simpler perform better financially, draw a premium, and more likely to have people recommend them and, and be loyal to them. So we, we found that there are many benefits for brands in embracing the concept of simplicity.
1: Now, I mentioned the scope and scale of the study in my introduction. Talk to us just for context about the methodology. It's important for people to understand how we ask consumers to rank brands and how you derive those benefits.
2: Sure. So, so you, know, you know, as you said, it, it's, a, it's a big global study, you know, 15,000 respondents plus. We have developed and actually refreshed over the years brand lists custom to each country sort of 100 over uh, around 125 brands if you will per country in 25 categories obviously the the sort of leading brands in each of those categories in each country um and then we have respondents um rate those brands we have respondents rate both the categories on a whole number of dimensions and also respondents rate the brands on actually a simple question which is you know uh, how much simpler more complex do you see this brand's communications experiences products and services versus its peers and then you know we analyze in a whole number of different ways if you will one uh, making sure to give a sort of equal but more important weight to the to the users of brands because obviously users of brands are rating brands more based on their experience rather than just communications we also factor people who are familiar with brands and not using them but we give them just slightly less weight We look at, you know, how consistent the ratings are, and we give a benefit to brands that have consistent ratings. We look at also the difference between the users and the familiar non-users, giving a benefit to brands where also perceptions are more aligned between the experience and, you know, the people who have seen them through communication. So a number of different metrics, and we also factor the industry ratings or category ratings if you will that a brand belongs to because in a certain way you know the the simplest insurance brand just to pick on a category that's typically seen as com- complex is likely not going to be as simple as maybe not the simplest fast food brand for example right which is seen as a very simple category so so we also factor the category into the way the the brands are are, are um, scored and, and ranked and then we also make sure to normalize everything because especially when we're looking at global results because as we've seen in doing these global studies respondents in different countries actually sort of respond in different ways use scales in different ways you know you typically find you know respondents in india always rate very enthusiastically respondents in germany typically rate less than enthusiastically (laughs) so we obviously can't you know give a benefit just because Brands in India are rated much more highly, just due to the way people rate. So we have to we have to factor that and factor, if you will, the, the cultural aspect of how people rate, and that goes also into into how we ultimately come up with the global school.
1: So culturally different countries are different graders. So I want my teacher to come from a country that's uh, grades generously.
2: I guess, yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, a lot of it is in some ways a certain, I mean, you could even see it as a certain kind of enthusiasm versus maybe cynicism in general towards, you know, towards the world in general, in a way, in the sense that certain countries seem to be more enthusiastic.
1: So very rigorous methodology. And the brands typically in the study are not your fast-moving consumer goods brands. They're primarily brands that have an experiential or service component.
2: Correct. Not because we don't believe that Product brands can't be simple or actually complex in the way they, you know, either market themselves or even, uh, you know, present themselves. But um, just for the sake of, A, being able to have a, a finite brand list, because there are only so many brands that we can actually post in the study. Yes, we focused on the brands that in a certain way have more of a, if you will, service or experience aspect in terms of how people are, are going to be interacting with them.
1: And a final methodology question. How do you classify a brand as global? versus pertaining
2: to one country. Sure, and so that, you know, since we developed the brand list really based on countries, because we want to make sure that we have, let's say, if we're doing banks, the top five banks in any given country, as opposed to, for example, just take, picking a global bank and putting it in there. So the, the ones that end up being in the global list, are brands that end up being in two or more countries, if you will, and, and so they, you know, it's not our selection, it's more just because that's, they, they happen to be the bigger brands in more than one country.
1: Okay, Brian, now that we know the framework, let's see. Who are the winners? Will you show us the global winners first who have performed well in more than two countries, as I understand your methodology?
2: So, you know, the global top 10, and actually, you know, per having now done this study for, for a whole number of years, what's interesting is there are a lot of brands that actually appear on this list repeatedly, if you will, that, that we've seen over and over, as well as, you know, the top brands this year, lead all you know has been there aldi also has been there that those two brands actually used to be a bit surprising in the u.s because they didn't have a u.s presence when we first uh, you know had them in the studies and and had them from a global standpoint they had always been seen as incredibly simple you know now in the u.s people are also experiencing you know what what they deliver but it is uh, you know a combination of if you will sort of supermarket or if you will, you know, retail shopping type brands, technology, but Google and Amazon, they have also been ones that have been there repeatedly as well as, you know, what I guess in the industry is called quick serve, but which I guess typical people call fast food. You know, brands like McDonald's and, and Burger King have also often been, you know, in these global top 10. And the reason these brands are in the in the global top 10 is not, you know, that's a, another question that often comes up when we share this, is sort of people expect that it's always going to be kind of Apple or anyway, a brand that's embraced beautiful design and simple design. And that's not how consumers always look at the concept of simplicity. Really, what the what we've seen through the years, the the main reason why consumers find brand simple is it's brands that promise them something and then actually deliver on them and deliver on them in ways back to the idea of being clear, but also unexpectedly fresh deliver on them in ways that actually delight them and provide surprise. And so that's why brands like Lidl and Aldi, and if people have been into an Aldi, you definitely, uh, you know, it's not like the store is beautifully designed. It's very bare bones, but in some ways, Aldi is promising you value When you experience the store, you know that like, oh, well, they're not putting the money into the store or into the displays, if you will. They're really putting the money into giving me, you know, the products at the cheapest price. And then I'm also, you know, depending on the season or or what's, uh, you know, the, the the moment of the year, if you will, they're going to have products that you're going to find surprising that you actually find there at this fantastic price, you know, such as luxury chocolates or some type of, if you will, either luxury or electronic goods, something that you wouldn't expect to see at a store like that. That they suddenly have at a price that seems, you know, surprising and and you know, obviously remarkably appealing for people. So it's a it, it's a lot of that. That's really what has kept the brands that have succeeded from a simplicity standpoint always at the top is that they understand that concept that if we promise something to people, we need to deliver on it. So the experience plays obviously. It's you know it's the promise counts, but if you aren't delivering on that promise in the experience, you you won't be seen as simple.
1: It also seems that these brands continue to innovate when we look at Amazon and you and I have seen Amazon over the years in this study evolve for the guys who created the one click to prime and echo and and so much more now. So it's not, as you said, about being static.
2: Correct, and and even you know, and we have those as separate brands. You know, we we also have uh, you know looked at the streaming brands, for example, you know like Prime Video, and Netflix, and one thing that Amazon's done well, even in the streaming space where you know at times they've struggled versus netflix and others in terms of having the kind of go-to content or at least the flagship content that some of the other ones have had but what we saw in uh, people's comments what they appreciate about something like prime videos not only are they getting it with their prime subscription so it feels again like this sort of added integrated bonus they're also able to then access lots of other things like apple plus or anyway lots of other streamers they end up accessing through Prime Video because Amazon's making it easy for them to actually get it through them. So, so it's sort of interesting where Amazon, you know, obviously does that on the shopping site, but they've applied some of the same, if you will, sort of knowledge and insight they've found in being able to like enable people to buy anything on the website. They're applying that same thing into the streaming space. So it's actually quite interesting to see how they evolve as a business and. And apply obviously some of the some of the differentiating insights and and tactics and strategies they have in one area of the business to others.
1: I think it's important to underline, unlike other studies, when you are interpreting the performance of the brands, you are drawing heavily on the open ends of the respondents. And we know many other studies are a little more black box in their orientation in terms of strategists opining. In this case, you have data. It's very much from the consumer perspective.
2: Yeah correct. I mean that's when people rate a brand as particularly simple or as particularly complex we ask them why um and yes there there's some you know really good insights that come from from what people say and then to the point on brands like McDonald's or Burger King they you know have gotten a lot of pluses in the last study in terms of what they've done from a digital experience standpoint and making you know ordering much more seamless and easy and um, and obviously something that they likely have been working on for many years but that people sort of see as coming out from the pandemic that they've actually really made the whole shopping experience in their restaurants actually even easier and touch-free and and uh, you know weight free, if you will. And so that's that has really paid off for them.
1: Certainly. Well Brian, let's take a look at the US, please.
2: Of course. So the US has some, you know, so I mean actually all of all of the results had do have always some surprises. I mean, when we looked at the global ones, I was sort of hissing more on. On what was expected. One thing in the in the US this year is we saw that Whole Foods got the rating as the simplest brand. That actually also goes back to Amazon because one of the reasons people did rate it as simple is the integration with Amazon and, and delivery. Um, the other thing I think that, that sort of was surprising is that, you know, Whole Foods obviously is a as a supermarket brand, is a premium one in the sense of it's not the one you automatically think is, you know, per the Aldis or the Lidl's or the Costco's is is sort of the 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 or or the Trader Joe's is, is that is also on the list is on the sort of cheaper side. But what we saw when we looked at the open ends, is that people actually really thought that Whole Foods was uh, the place that made it easier for them to shop healthy and to eat healthy. And so that whole, which has been at the heart of the brand, you know, from from the start, if you will, the, the whole idea of organic and other things like that. So it's sort of interesting, one, that, you know, they haven't wavered from that. They're getting credit for that. And obviously that's also potentially getting more and more important to people especially in the, you know, in the geographies they are. I mean, Whole Foods is not everywhere. So it's also, about, you know, we, are, we have people rate brands if they use the brand. Also, if they're familiar with the brand, we don't have people rate brands if they if they don't know the brand. So obviously also the people who rated Whole Foods are typically going to be people who are likely in more, you know, coastal or urban areas or just that's that's where, you know, Whole Foods locations are more likely to be.
1: I find it interesting, Brian, Whole Foods and Trader Joe's and even Lidl and Aldi in the prior slides, they have very different business models. On the one hand, you have a more premium brand like a Whole Foods and a more discount or value-oriented brands like Trader Joe's, so how do you square that? It's super interesting that you can perform well on simplicity and have different business models
2: true and and really, it goes back to that idea of like you know what do you stand for and what are you promising to people and what are they expecting? and then are you delivering on that? and and so obviously, you know when people are going to Whole Foods, they're not expecting the same thing as when they're going to a trader shows. and so so I think it 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 really is about that. It's about sort of you know brands really being true to to what they stand for, having obviously a sense and 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 articulation of what they stand for, but then staying true to it and the experiences they deliver.
1: yeah, I, I think that's very interesting. What's going on with parcel delivery? I see the post office and UPS, perhaps a little surprising?
2: Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, as we'll see, it's sort of in the UK, actually, Royal Mail also did well. What we saw in the open ends there is, one, a lot of a lot of goodwill, I would say, towards the postal carriers in terms of sort of being seen, again, I think, coming out of the pandemic and the the sort of essential worker and the fact that, you know, they're, they're people who, one, are seen as having a sort of human touch because people see the see the if you will the male carriers and see them as people and often have relationships with them but also in that sort of idea of being really kind of an essential part to, uh, an essential part of my life and something that you know I would have had a much harder time if they didn't exist so i think you know that that's where that plays you know in the past we had seen that Amazon got more credit and they got less credit in the sense that Amazon was always the one that was getting the credit for the super fast delivery and, and all of that. I think they've managed to, to shift that a little, if you will. And, and I think people are becoming or have become more aware of the importance of the actual carriers as opposed to just sort of seeing Amazon as being the one that's doing it all.
1: So, Brian, I know many of our audience are joining from the UK. Could you show uh, us probably, those
2: rankings? ranking? Let's go to that. So that has, you know, again, a lot of the ones, you know, Per Aldi and Lidl that we see in in the global one. I mean, we touched on also the the Royal Mail one, which uh, you know potentially was was a surprise there because there'd also been, you know, there've also been some um, some issues with strikes and anyway, you know, there's contentious things around the Royal Mail in the in the news flow. You see Google, you know, at number one. I think it's interesting. I'm I'm sort of curious to see as things progress. In some ways, Google has had a, um, in a certain way, near, or at least, you know, mindshare-wise, monopoly in terms of search and, and being the sort of first place you're going to go to find anything. Now with GPT and, you know, the AI apps, obviously, they're, they're new sources, you know. So I think, anyway, it's going to be interesting to sort of see if anything sort of changes there in terms of, you know, people having that kind of default where Google is kind of their first step for everything you know, that they're trying to find online or not. I, and obviously, you know, they, they are also themselves have their, have their own AI platform. So it's not that they're ignoring that. It's just I, I I do think that this is probably one of the first times where there's a potential for a major shift, if you will, in terms of how people behave.
1: Yeah, that's certainly interesting. I'm also seeing Apple here. And that one has had a mixed performance over the decade that I've been working on the study.
2: Yeah, no, that was actually surprising that they did especially well in the UK. You know, in the US, they sort of remained where they've always been a bit in the study, which is sort of in the middle. And that's always been surprising to people because when, you know, we sort of at times have done, you know, fun workshop exercises, actually, that I remember. We've run together, Margaret, where you sort of ask people to kind of guess, like, what would be the top simplest brands? You know, most marketers, or anyway, people who, who one meets would sort of automatically say, well, it's going to be Apple. And it actually never was Apple because, and that was for sort of two big reasons. One, the fact that there are Apple people and there are people who are very anti-Apple. And sense; it's a polarizing brand, much more polarizing than Samsung, for example. So, you know, Apple users obviously can be very loyal and, you know, fervent believers and find the brand super simple. People who are not Apple users but familiar with Apple see it as like well i'm really you know i don't get apple anything and you know in the past obviously all the plugs were different one of that was one of the things even from a user standpoint that had been hurting apple in recent years is uh, you know we we'd had a an open end where people said they should call themselves the dongle company because as opposed to it being seamless it's something where you know i'm constantly having to find uh, five different connectors to to do things that Sadly, it's sort of still a bit the case as they've now, you know, evolved towards uh, USB-C as as the sort of more universal thing, which hopefully maybe resolves some of that going forward. But anyway, they, they had suffered from that in the past. In the UK, they did particularly well. Then looking at it, I think one of the this is going to sound maybe a, a little too superficial, but I do think it it played, which is the sort of Ted Lasso effect of Apple Plus, and not that that's just an only UK phenomenon, but it it definitely you know resonated in the UK and the fact. Having, you know, the sort of Apple Plus, Apple TV aspect to the brand has broadened it and has made it actually something that is more relevant. It has lessened this idea of like, oh, I'm not an Apple person because, you know, people might not be on an Apple product, but they still want to see Ted Lasso. So <laughs> there's still some still some positive thought towards Apple in that regard and, and you know, how they've in some way sort of broadened what the brand stands for through through what they're offering.
1: That's very interesting. So, Brian… A lot of brands would you show us the brands who were at the bottom of the pile
2: yes this is sometimes interesting and meaning sort of the some of these are some interesting stories some of them are brands that are, have often been at the bottom as you see you know this is from a global standpoint in the u.s not all of these brands will be familiar to everyone because you know sky for example is is more of a, a european broadcast brand but um, what you see is, in t- in terms of the brands that are, uh, you know, are at the bottom here and and have often been at the bottom, car rental, as a category, is one that seems to never manage to get itself out of uh, being seen as as complex, no matter what innovative or sometimes you know where they try to to have the uh, things like Zipcar and other offerings that are supposed to make make it more seamless. There's still the notion that you know if you're renting a car, typically. The price you're paying is not going to be the price you think you might be paying is not the price you end up paying when you have to go to the desk and go through all of the different options and insurances and and things like that. So you know that that's something that's been the case, is still the case per the per the ones you see here with budget and Avis. Ryanair is another brand that again, sort of cheap airline, successful, you know, airline in the sense that an airline that actually still can do well from a business standpoint, but from an experience standpoint, people always feel that somehow they've been wrongfully sold in the sense that they told me it was going to be, you know, five pounds or five euros. And then by the time I got out of there, given all of the surcharges, I could have bought a ticket on actually a different airline and it wasn't as cheap as I I thought it was. So that's also why they end up always at the bottom is really that, you know, people don't see it as kind of truthful advertising, if you will. And then the last one where I'll maybe move to the U.S. because, it's going to talk. Twitter was in the bottom globally, but it was the bottom brand in the US. Twitter, which is now X, you know, at the time we did the study, it was still Twitter. What we've seen in terms of uh, some of the, if you will, macro trends, and that was already also in the in the last edition of the study, is media and social media are increasingly seen as as complex. Uh, people and and the reason for that is people actually just do not trust or do not feel they can trust. The contents that they that they see and find, and you know that's all the more the case for Twitter. And based on the open ends, you know the the changes brought about by Elon Musk's you know acquisition of it uh, have not helped that in the sense that it's it's only increased the distrust.
1: Yeah, that's perhaps not unsurprising to people. The decline in Twitter, Brian. I'm curious, you've referenced the top of the pile and the bottom of the pile, but there are 800 brands globally. Any declines across the mix that you would highlight and analyze?
2: Sure. And here maybe I can get out of sharing for a bit and we'll come back. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I thought was very interesting this year is, so in the, you know, the the purse edition, the streaming brands and like Netflix, was you know at the top what we've seen especially in the us is the streaming brands in general have mostly declined actually prime video being the being the exception you know when we looked again at sort of why that was it is because people you know sort of it's gone back to now too many choices again and i I, you know i don't understand really the differences I see, you know, content that's on one platform and then appears on the other platform. So it's not even the content that I may be wanting to subscribe. And like, which one do I really need? Which one do I don't need? Another. There are so many that people feel that they can't s- subscribe to all of them and are needing to make choices and are finding it actually quite complex to really pick the one that they do want to align with, if you will. So I think, you know, that's interesting just because I think it's a it's an evolution of a category, right? From being something where there was kind of Netflix as this very clear sort of leader singular player that you automatically would be the one that that you were going to subscribe to there was the pandemic effect where people were desperate to have any form of entertainment if you will and this was you know in some ways the, the all of these streamers were were sort of the lifelines for people and now as that has evolved and people have gone back to if you will li- living a bit less of a just fully virtual life they're having a hard time Sort of really understanding which is the one i find valuable and the plethora of options and pricing is just making it complex to them so i thought i thought that was an interesting one just and also back to the the value of simplicity you know a lot of the the things that we'd seen in terms of the value of simplicity in the previous edition some of that had also come from brands like netflix right that had fantastic stock performance as they were sort of exploding and then, in that same way, as they sort of dropped in our rankings, you know, the financial performance has also hit some, some let's say, turbulent times, or at least not not fully positive times.
1: Brian, there's a question coming in as to why we think social media is viewed as not simple.
2: Well, I think it's a, it, it really goes back to, and this is not just media; this is also another thing that we've seen across all brands is. Trust and simplicity have a a big relationship. And and it's actually, if anything, it's more that distrust and complexity have a strong relationship, meaning that when people see things as complex, they typically see them as, you know, like per a complicated rental car agreement or a complicated explanation of benefits from a health insurer or, or anything like that they don't see that as being like you're doing it by accident. They see it as like, okay, well, this is, the you know, the company is somehow trying to take advantage of me in the fine print and and is somehow hiding something. And anyway, it, it creates basically distrust. I'm seeing it as complex and it's making me not trust it. And then also, you know, conversely, if I don't trust it, I will see it as complex because I won't be sure about, you know, what I'm finding there. So back to social media, it, it really is that it's a it's a sort of, self-fulfilling spiral, if you will, between complexity and and distrust and where people are not able don't feel able to actually trust the content that they're seeing and and sadly it's not just social media it's social media and also the main media um you know properties like cnn and fox news where um again because of the also polarization of uh, you know of perceptions uh, people are just having a hard time knowing what you know is this is this the real information can i trust the information i'm finding here and i think the Back to X, i.e., I Twitter being at the bottom, that you know, I-, I think that platform currently is the one that is suffering from that the most.
1: Right, makes sense, Brian. Brian, you and I together have been looking at simplicity for over a decade. What's changed and what's stayed the same in terms of simplicity as a concept and in terms of brands' performance?
2: Sure, I mean, I think you know, what stayed the same is some of those if you will real fundamental principles as to what makes people see a brand as, as simple which is you know to what we were just talking about this idea of of trust and the the relationship to trust linked to that in some ways the idea of if you're promising something to people you're delivering it in the experience and there's not a disconnect between what you promised them and then the experience that they had so i think you know, those things have have not changed. They're really kind of fundamental, universal principles and, and and in many ways really should be universal principles as to how people think about brands in the sense of both how they think about articulating what a brand stands for, but then also realizing that the experience that the brand will deliver is just as important as that articulation as to what the brand should stand for. The things that have changed, I mean, I, I do think, you know, per what we were just talking about on, on the streamers or on the media, I, I you know, I think it's certain certain categories have, you know, evolved, if you will, in terms of sometimes it's because, you know, there've been more entrants and there's suddenly much more choice. I mean, I think that's one of the things that we have seen throughout the study is the amount of channels and um, you know, sort of ways that people can interact with brands has just grown exponentially. And and choice automatically in, increases complexity, if you will. And, you know, there was a study, well, not one of our studies, it's a sort of famous study from a, a whole number of years ago that if you give people more than seven flavors of jam, they stop buying as much jam because just there's too much choice. And, you know, instead of being able to pick the jam, they get and sort of going, okay, well, I, I can't figure out which jam I want, and, and they walk away. So, I, you know, I, I think that's really, if we're sort of thinking about What's evolved in the, you know since we've started doing this study, I do think that's why complexity remains, or simplicity remains a business, and and complexity remains a problem, is uh, you know the, the the exponential increase of the amount of choice that people have, and that you know the streaming brands is just the latest example of that, right? You start giving people too much choice, and starts getting complicated for them.
1: Yeah, certainly abundance can run counter to simplicity. I'm seeing many questions come in. Some are asking about the difference in this report's methodology to other studies. I would say the core difference is this is taking data directly from 15,000 consumers across nine countries. In many other studies, it's a little more inferred by experts at um, a brand strategy firm or another. So that's a significant difference. Brian, some very interesting questions coming in around... The merits of giving the customer the ability to essentially have what they want. Tell us what you want and we'll give it to you versus saying there are three options. Choose an option. So in a generic sense, what's your perspective around this free flow, get what you want versus the we are the brand, we've given you alternatives because we know essentially uh, what the majority of consumers need and we know how to process the three options
2: well i mean i think yeah i mean it, it's a uh, it's obviously it's a uh, it's uh, that can vary a lot depending on you know what what brand offering product etc i do think i mean the, the thing to be mindful of and the idea of the sort of self-serve meaning people defining what they want and then you somehow automatically could tailor to that that isn't automatically making things easier for people i mean people don't always know what they want or at least uh, you know don't always have either the either knowledge or even the confidence to sort of know, and they actually do want to be directed. You know, they they do want help. I mean, if you think about financial services and, you know, things like investments and, and things like that, one of the things we found is that, that's one of the hardest things that people have is sort of knowing like where and when to invest at that time. And obviously they want advice for that. You know, they don't want it to just be on their own terms because, I mean, obviously a subset of people, i.e. day traders and people who, who um, you know, make it uh, in some ways the, the sort of full occupation do want that. But for the most part, you know, general consumers do need help there and want to be given a limited amount or at least an understandable and limited amount of choices as opposed to sort of saying, well, we could do anything for you. I guess my overall answer is i think there is a you know there's obviously you don't want to give choices that exclude what people want because then you're missing something and you're and and all give them choices that they feel are somehow so rigid that it's not able to tailor to their personal and individual needs at the same time if you give them something that's so open you know that actually can be seen as more complex and 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 less helpful and paralyzing
1: It'll be extraordinarily interesting to view this over time as chatbots and AI become more prevalent in not just the communications, but the actual customer experience, because that has the c- capacity to provide infinite options, but let's see how it follows through on those options.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and also to even you know has the, the the AIs have the capacity to decomplexify to some reason in, in some ways because they can become in any category a kind of advisor if you will because as as long as you trust the AI I mean that's yeah. that's, a, that's a sort of different question but yeah. of
1: course the the nature of the data the language models are trained on presents all kinds of opportunities and challenges so Brian in addition to ranking brands we ask the consumers. Uh, more general questions around simplicity, and I'd love for you to show us what are the metrics. We talk a lot at Siegel and Gale about simplicity pays. Uh, show us how you have quantified
2: that. Sure, well, let me let me bring the presentation back up. So one of the things we've done, and we did this, you know, when we when we started, you know, the, the first one back in two thousand and ten, is to to make a portfolio out of, you know, the stocks of the, of the publicly, you know, the brands that are publicly traded on, on the, um, on the major indices, and then just look at like, how does that, you know, stock portfolio, if you will, evolve compared to the, the major indices uh, indexes and you know what we've seen as you see here there's that it really does you know it, it, the the brands that are seen as simplest have outperformed um and you know and as i was saying earlier per netflix you know they that portfolio also changes over time you know so netflix isn't in the portfolio this year because because uh, it was not in the in the top 10 you know, in previous years, it had been and had been one of the drivers, if you will, of of what you're seeing here in terms of that, that sort of tremendous stock performance. Obviously, this is, you know, I always caveat this, that this is backwards looking, it's not forwards looking. So, you know, this is sort of making a a portfolio and then backward looking at how it would have, how it would have performed. But anyway, we have seen that, the um stocks of the companies um that are seen as providing you know products and services that people see as simple and definitely outperform all the markets and then the other things you know we ask people is we ask people like you know how much more likely would you be to recommend a brand if it is providing simpler experiences uh, products services to you and we also ask them you know actually at the brand level like if if this brand would actually you know simplify its offering and products and services to you what you know would you be willing to pay more for it and if so you know of your of your typical sort of monthly bill how much more would you be willing to pay now obviously you know this is this is stated it's not always people don't always act on on what they tell you in terms of what they're going to pay but what we found even in making a conservative estimate so one is the fact that you know a large amount of people are willing to pay a premium And when we even do a sort of conservative estimate, sort of rounding down even the amounts that they're willing to pay for the brands in various categories, we see that there is a large amount of money that's being left on the table, you know, huge $780 billion of revenue that if people actually had simplified more, they, you know, the the consumers would actually pay for that.
1: Brian, I'm getting the classic causation, correlation question here. Specifically around beating the index, the idea of can I say that that um, 1600 percentage deviation is caused by commitment to simplicity?
2: No, we can't. We can't say it, it's a correlation. It's not a, it's, it, it is. A, and obviously, you know, the, the, it would be, it would be crazy for us to say that the only thing that's driving the positive business performance of companies is only simplicity. Um so so it it, it it is definitely not just sole causation. But what we do see is strong correlation and, yeah. and the fact that the brands that are seen as simplest do perform better. And so there's definitely, you know, the, there is definitely a benefit, if you will, from a financial standpoint if if you can simplify.
1: What I found, Brian, is anecdotally the brands that get simplicity the leaders get a lot of other things right as well in terms of organization culture the simplicity externally can correlate with simplicity internally which generates lots of other positive outcomes that's my theory of the case here
2: yeah a very good point yeah
1: yeah
2: and also you know as you know we've studied also the the, that internally and because yes we've seen that organizations where people find the actual internal organization, simpler, meaning the company is a, is a simpler place to work have a lot of benefits internally also in the sense that they trust leadership more, they're more likely to actually recommend and and sort of be a promoter of the company. They're more likely to stay at the company. And then, you know, the, one of the biggest deltas was that they actually find it much easier to innovate in a company that they feel is simpler than in one that they see as complex. So. And
1: actually, we recorded another episode of this Unlocking Brand series on that study. And you can find that on the Siegel and Scale Says podcast podcast. So Brian, let's touch on different industries, how simplicity varies across industries. We are a bit time constrained. So maybe speak briefly to an industry and perhaps the journeys customers experience through interactions with a brand in, yeah, let's go, consumer <laughs> finance.
2: Yeah. And, and this is actually something we did this year we really wanted to to double down looking you know back to that idea of, of the fact that we know that experience does really matter in terms of you know how people actually perceive brands to be simple or not we wanted to, to sort of look at the journey and like which touch points people found more or less simple or complex depending on different categories so this one is just looking at, at um, consumer finance obviously you know the sort of interesting and linked also to to innovation on a lot of the banks parts but you know the atm which you know, you can do more and more things with, but the people actually find it super simple. So getting your money out is is obviously a simple thing. However, what we saw is the more complex ones is, you know, both sort of understanding the details and benefits of like opening new accounts, as well as knowing about sort of other products and services that your actual bank would have that could benefit you. Those are some of the things that the people find most complex, as well as visiting a bank branch to to get help on a, on a financial topic. So in some ways, the you know the banks have have been doing really well at simplifying things using digital, you know, and digital innovation, and somewhere from online banking to what happens at the ATMs to 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 drive greater simplicity. But those pieces that are either more in person or also sort of requiring a bit more of a deeper understanding as to what more I could have, they're leaving a lot of opportunity there on the table. Because if you think that people are having, you know, they would actually want to know more about sort of the other products and services the bank provides. And that's what they're finding hardest.
1: For the purpose Um, of people joining on the podcast, and and, um, Brian is showing us some of the customer journey maps, the various touch points in an industry and the relative simplicity or complexity as rated by the respondents. I believe we have, gosh, more than 15 of these maps. So I encourage people to check out the site and you will see that a link to that. On the chat now, Brian. You went through consumer finance very briefly. I know you have a couple of others. Just talk. about yeah,
2: well, so, You know, we looked at airlines. Obviously, one of the bigger you know, so boarding super easy. You know, having to manage changes and delays—that's the pain point, One of the bigger pain points and resolving an issue on arrival. Um, and then, you know, looking at broadly at, at healthcare and, and uh, health insurance. And you know, this is something we've also seen in studies we've actually done for. For health insurance clients but you know understanding the benefits and plans and differences is one of the biggest pain points you know that like comparing comparing if you will up front
1: one of the reasons why i believe so deeply in the power of these journey maps is because they recognize the reality that a brand has a finite set of resources and the brand leadership doesn't have infinite time or budget so this is a really helpful way to consider Where on that customer journey can you have the most impact by simplifying? So I want to draw people's attention to that. Brian, I'm getting some questions regarding B2B, recognising this is primarily a B2C study. We've explored B2B in the past. Could you briefly extrapolate any of the findings here?
2: Sure. I mean, you know, the one thing also with B2B is, you know, B2B, let's say, clients and prospects for B2B companies our consumers do. <laughs> so they're not, you know, so it's not like they suddenly put on their B2B hat and and forget the rest of their lives. So what we've always seen, and, you know, we have a lot of B2B clients, it's one of actually one of our, our largest client bases. So, you know, we know that B2B, if you will, customers are consumers too. And the way they look at a B2B experience is not in isolation from how they would also have a consumer experience. So it's not like, it's these very kind of completely separate worlds. The worlds are, are very fungible, and we've even seen, you know, over the years, like for just to use an example of of sort of HP as a as a printer, and HP also having a lot of you know B two B tech uh, service offerings and 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 other offerings. People on the B two B side of HP also were impacted by how they perceived the printers. So if they perceive the printers well, that actually you know. Had an impact on how they perceived the the B two B offering, also and 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 vice versa. So a lot of the I think findings that we extrapolate, you know, from the consumer study are also valid for B two B. And the same to the notion that you need to really define what you stand for, and then you need to to deliver on it. If you don't do that in B two B, it's actually probably even riskier or even more damaging to you than it would be if you're a consumer product because you know the relationships are typically stickier and the uh, and the business cycles are longer and then in that same way you know you can't think of the experience of being like oh well would be to b so it's fine we can have a complicated experience or we can you know we don't need to to worry about this you know they they're shopping you too and that's another place where you can be disrupted if a competitor is actually managing to make themselves, you know, much easier and much much easier either to engage with or easier to shop from, you're obviously going to see a, a real impact on your business. And I think one of the places it manifests most often in B two B, because often these are large companies with very complex portfolios or you know diverse and complex portfolios, can be in the brand architecture, sort of how you know, and, and often what happens is what's showing externally is the org chart and the sort of way things are organized internally instead of having taken that kind of outside view as like, well, what's the best way we could, and the best, simplest, most distinctive way we could present ourselves, but also understanding that our brand architecture and the way we're, we're showing what we offer should also tie to what our story is and to what we actually stand for as a brand. It should be a proof point of that as opposed to sort of seen as just something separate.
1: Certainly, and I would refer the audience to the Siegel and Gale blog. I've written extensively around simplicity in B2B, as has Brian and other colleagues. So lots of interesting learnings to explore there. Brian, you've touched on, particularly through your review of the journey maps, on the how. How can a brand simplify? Any other top-of-mind observations from working with clients over the decade?
2: Well, I think you know, and and so what you highlighted, Margaret, in the in the in the touch point and prioritization of those touch points, it is resources are finite. So so you have to obviously be able to figure out where to focus first. Ideas also, you know, simplicity. We always say, you know, simplicity is a journey, it's not a destination. So it, it's not something where you sort of just okay, well, we're going to do a simplification project and it will be over. It's really something you have to start building sort of fundamentally into the way you operate and and into your practices. And then last but not least, you know, back to the notion of real simplicity is delivered when, you know, you stand for something and people see you as actually delivering that in the experience. If you haven't, you know, strongly defined what you stand for, you know, if you've only sort of defined yourself as like, oh, well, we're a manufacturer of semiconductors (laughs) and X revenues and X market cap or something, you know, that you're, you're not going to stand for anything in people's minds. And also, you know, you're not creating any, any expectation. And you're also not actually providing yourself with any guidance as to how you should continue to to, to build a, a brand that's going to have loyalty and and uh, you know drive drive growth and share for you in the market so i think you know that's that's one of the things that either you know if it hasn't been done obviously needs to be done but also even if it has been done, is something that one needs to periodically look at and say, okay, have we really defined ourselves in a way that actually matches to our ambition for the future and, and you know, where we're trying to go as a business? Because the brand needs to, to sort of keep up with that.
1: Brian, this year we also explored supplementally the relationship between simplicity, DEI, and ESG initiatives. I know we are time constrained, but could you very briefly highlight the findings there?
2: Sure. I'll just quickly share what we found there. I mean, the the, the real headline there is just that, I mean, it's sort of two, two headlines. It's one that, you know, consumers are more likely to purchase from a brand if they see a, a demonstrated commitment to to those, um, if you will, more than topics, but to, to, to those uh, initiatives from you know a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion standpoint as well as from a, a more sustainability standpoint. And what we've seen is that that you know is is the case uh, throughout. You know, some of the ratings you see, obviously, from the country standpoint, also is impacted by what I was talking about earlier in terms of some people are are more enthusiastic than others but what we've what we've really found is that you know people struggle to actually always see how companies are actually delivering on those commitments and and communicating that so we we you know what what the data shows is i think there's a there's a real opportunity to to simplify and sharpen how companies talk about what they're accomplishing from from these in these areas to make it clearer to clearer and more understandable to people because it has an impact and and it's worth doing.
1: Yeah, and I think it's quite extraordinary. I mean, in my mind, Brian, to simplify meaning to use plain language and clear processes is the ultimate access, which lends itself to DEI and ESG. Uh, success. But without simplicity, people just don't have access to so much. Brian, I'm getting some questions around the intersection of creativity and simplicity. So they're coming here in different flavors. How do brands avoid being boring? What is the role of creativity? And also, do you think simplicity is just a trend?
2: Well, I'll start with that last one. We definitely don't think it's a trend because, well, one because you know we've been we've been committed to way longer than we'd be committed to a trend, <laughs> and also we've seen you know that, as I said that you know over all of the the years of the of the study that there's been this continued continued value and continued need for it. In terms of the idea of of it being born, I mean, I think the the one thing to think is that simplicity isn't just about stripping everything away. It's not sort of like it's not about everything just becoming a a sort of white blank sheet you know with with like a logo on it for example it's something where you really you know back to this idea of like it's clarity and surprise you want things to be remarkably clear but you want to be doing it in a way that actually is engaging with people that feels fresh to people is going to differentiate you and make you seem different and what that means is it's not just about taking things away it's about being able to sort of show that you actually truly understand your consumers' needs. That, you know, back to that, that question and, and topic you brought up around like letting people do things themselves versus giving them options. It's like it's being able to give them just the right options so that they actually feel like, oh, this brand really understands me because these options they've brought in front of me are like the three ones I really would want to look at. And they're not sort of serving something up to me that you know i I would feel is is not relevant so i think it's something that that sometimes does get misinterpreted as this idea that it's just sort of erasing and removing things i mean it can be that because sometimes there is too much clutter and you do have to declutter but at, at the same time it's also doing it in a way that actually is going to you know truly engage people and make them feel like they're getting a distinct value out of out of engaging
1: well, thank you for that, Brian. As I think about the conclusions from our conversation, anything else that you missed that you would like to highlight?
2: I don't know. I think we've talked about a lot, so I probably have, but I can't. just coming to mind.
1: Well, I'll, I'll, in thanking you, Brian, a couple of my takeaways. Simplicity pays for the brands that embrace it. Consumers reward it and capital markets reward it. Also, take away that simplicity is not easy. It's not, as you say, about being reductive or dull. It's about understanding your customers so deeply, articulating how you make a positive difference in their lives, and consistently delivering on that promise in a distinctive way. And my final takeaway simplicity is not one size fits all. Customers' expectations vary by category, as you've demonstrated, and evolve over time. It requires diligence and vigilance. With that, I would remind our audience, if you are interested in simplifying any aspect of your brand experience, visual or verbal identity or strategy, we would be delighted to help. And indeed, as Brian indicated, if you want detailed research to better understand your customers or your employees' needs and how you can simplify there, we have a depth of expertise. I've put my email into the chat. You can write me or you can find me on LinkedIn, and I will connect you with our colleagues to dig deep into how you can simplify. If you would like to listen to this uh, webinar again, you will find it as well as many others out on the Siegel and Gale Says podcast. And finally, I would encourage you to follow Siegel and Gale on LinkedIn. We post about simplicity daily and other branding topics as well. So wonderful resources there. Thank you to our audience. I know we've had a large audience for this conversation. We value your questions and your enthusiasm. And with that, on behalf of all of us at Siegel and Gale, I'm Margaret Malloy, thanking you very much.
2: Thanks, Byron.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Siegel and Gale Says. You can read more thought leadership pieces and explore our work at SiegelGale.com. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. While you're at it, please leave us a review. See you next time.